definition. From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. Glad that you have joined us. We've got a great program for you. I want to remind you that you can find this and every program at TonyPerkins.com. You can also find Tony on Gab at, at Tony underscore Perkins. I've got a quick announcement I want to start off with today. For those of you who are looking to push back, specifically at the school board level, if you're concerned about the direction of the nation and the worldview being taught in our schools, we have an event for you next Tuesday, September 21st at two o'clock Eastern time, FRC Action We'll be hosting a free of charge school board boot camp session on how to file a Freedom of Information Act request, also referred to as FOIA, something that parents across the nation have been doing to find out what their children are being taught in the classrooms. Did you know that the conversation your educators are having on public uh, on public service, public computers, are all public documents that you, as the public, have a right to request, and you can find out what they're saying behind the scenes. You know what they're saying in the press releases. What are they saying behind the scenes? That's what a FOIA document can help you do, and parents increasingly are learning how to use those to find out what is really going on. And we want to help you learn how to file a FOIA request to safeguard the education in your community. So Bill Marshall from Judicial Watch will be explaining how you can use FOIA to your advantage. To join that event, go to frcaction.org slash schools and register. Again, that's this coming Tuesday at 2 o'clock Eastern. Go to frcaction.org slash schools. Hope you will be there. Now, today, a great program lined up for you. Another setback for the Biden administration in their attempt to challenge the Texas heartbeat law. Uh, We'll talk about that today. 24 state attorneys general have signed a letter opposing Biden's vaccine mandate. We'll discuss that as well. At the end of the program, would Jesus comply with Biden's vaccine mandate? That's the question we're going to discuss in our worldview conversation later on the program. But now the headlines. Thousands of migrants, mostly from Haiti, are packed together in a temporary staging area underneath the Del Rio International Bridge in Texas. While border agents there are trying to quickly process the migrants, the number has been growing with staggering speed, growing from around 1,000 about a week ago to 4,000 earlier this week to more than 10,000 people last night, according to Del Rio's mayor and thousands more could be joining them in the coming days. Is anything being done to stem the surge at the border, or is the Biden administration only making things worse? With me now to talk about this and more is Congressman Pat Fallon. He represents the 4th Congressional District of Texas and also serves on the House Armed Services Committee and Oversight and Reform Committee. Congressman Fallon, welcome back to the program. Joseph, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Well, we're glad to have you. You are there in Texas. A lot going on. What's your take on what is happening at the border and why? Well, 
what's happening is it's a catastrophe. And why? It's because Joe Biden's policies, he refused to continue the policies of the Trump presidency that worked. The migrant protection protocols, better known as the wait in Mexico policy, worked. Uh, deporting folks, particularly bad actors, worked. Building a wall works. But he didn't want to do any of that, primarily because it was President Trump's policy. So what we've seen, Joseph, is an explosion of mass unlawful migration on our southern border. Over the past fiscal year, it's about 1.7 million people. I mean, look at that right there, that video that shows 10,000 migrants underneath the bridge. I mean, that's an American city we're importing. We've essentially imported the state of Idaho's population over the last year. We don't know who these people are. And the Biden administration says with one, one side of the mouth, out of one side of the mouth, they say COVID is a threat. So we're not going to allow anybody to come to this country legally just to visit, just on a tourist visa or just a, a, a trip from Canada, Europe, Asia, all over the world. And yet we are allowing a million and a half people this calendar year, 1.7 million in the last fiscal year of, of folks we don't know who they are. They're largely from countries that have no vaccinations at all. And when we even test them and they test positive for COVID, they're releasing them into the American homeland. This is a travesty and it must stop. It is a curious point that the COVID guidelines seem to be much more stringent for American citizens than they do for people who aren't American citizens. But there is something unique about the current surge at the border and that there's a lot of Haitians when typically Mm -hmm. it's been Southern Americans, people from South America, I should say. Why are we seeing so many people from Haiti now? So that's another thing to talk about. And it's a very interesting point. Thanks for bringing it up, Joseph, because most Americans think the folks that cross the southern border illegally are Mexican. They're Mexican nationals. And while, obviously, there's a lot of Mexican nationals that do that, uh, the last year we've seen mostly folks from Central America, uh, primarily Haiti, or I'm sorry, uh, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. But even though that's been the primary uh, impetus, that, that those folks, 70 other nation states have been represented with folks, their citizens, crossing our southern border illegally just this year and about 120 countries over the past few years. So it's really not a shock or surprise that we're going to have a concentration of a certain country, being they know Haiti's the poorest country in our hemisphere. And, you know, the reason why they're coming is they think they're going to be able to get in. And under Joe Biden, they're probably not wrong because you are that's a that's a long trek. I mean, we're not talking about Monterey, Mexico. That's a couple hour drive to the border. This is on the island of Hispaniola in the Caribbean. To then get to, I would presume, Mexico to start or maybe some other country and then make their way up to Mexico to our border, they wouldn't take the journey in the first place if they were going to have to wait in, in Mexico and be rejected and denied entry in the United States. Because then they're going to call back home and tell everybody, don't do what I just did. It was a terrible waste of time and money. And it put my life uh, and health in peril because you're talking about the drug cartels are facilitating all this. But when they can call back home and say, yeah, I'm here. I'm in the United States. You were going to get 10,000 Haitians today. It'll be 100,000 Haitians in a few months. And on September 8th, the Biden administration announced that they would no longer be conducting deportation flights from the United States back to Haiti. So we have created this new incentive for people specifically from Haiti to come to the United States. And of course, if you've been in Haiti lately, you realize the United States is a much better place to be. Uh, According to Senator Ted Cruz, he estimated, and I don't know where these figures come from, but he said that 
85% of the migrants at the border currently uh, could be from Haiti. So we are seeing a surge, but I think it's a, the point that you make that not everybody at the southern border is coming from Mexico. It really is an international entry point uh, for the country. Um, but there is a, the, the Biden administration has said that the one way that they want to stem immigration from the southern border is to deal with what they refer to as root causes, issues like violence and yeah. corruption and poverty as a way of making people want to stay where they are. What do you think of that approach to our migration, immigration issue? Okay, it's, it's completely backwards, Joseph. You know, violence and corruption and poverty, unfortunately, um, are staples of the third world, of developing nations. Uh, in fact, that's one of the reasons why they're still impoverished is because of the corruption. Uh, when we see that, the, again, all over Central America, Asia, and Africa, and even South America. So, but that's something that these nation states have to do to get their own houses in order. In the meantime, we need to secure our border. Uh, on the Armed Services Committee, I put an amendment in the National Defense Authorization Act that said it is the will and, and uh, it's the will of Congress that we recognize that our southern border, securing it, is a national security issue. Every Republican on the committee, all 28 of us, voted for it. And we got five Democrats to vote for it. So we actually won the day on that count. But 26 Democrats voted against it because the wokeism of the far left now, of which Joe Biden is really a party to, if not a slave to, doesn't want to recognize the southern border. They want to put their head in the sand and have an open border policy. When you do that, you're not doing what's in the best interest of this nation state because the folks that are coming here are not highly skilled laborers. They're not engineers. I mean, they're not scientists. CNN will find one that is, of course, but by and large, they're not. And they're not going to very much struggle to work in uh, this economy and to be a contributing member of society. Unfortunately, we're a debtor nation. The costs alone for the one and a half million that have been let in this year is estimated by the Congressional Budget Office to be $160 billion over the next 10 years. And that's what they're admitting to. So you know it's going to be probably hundreds of billions of dollars more. We don't have this money, Joseph, so we need to secure the border now and to make sure that Americans are safe. Because if you're not safe, then you're not free. And that's that's the truth. If you're not safe, you're not free. And it's it's strange, just as we as we kind of try to evaluate the worldview of the different political uh, perspectives, how much zeal there isn't for guarding the border and kind of policing crime in the middle of our cities compared to how much zeal there is for trying to make people get vaccines and wear masks. And whatever, wherever you fall on those issues, uh, proportionality seems to suggest that one is a bigger problem long-term for our country uh, than the other, but the, uh, the amount of energy being placed does not seem to reflect uh, that proportionality. But uh, Congressman Fallon, uh, there's an under, underrated kind of component to this border story in that the Federal Aviation Administration had placed a two-week flight restriction on drones along the southern border, allegedly because they did not want footage of what is happening. At least uh, this is the suspicion that they did not want footage of what is happening at the southern border to get out. They have since apparently uh, done away with that ban, and Fox News at least has regained clearance to fly their drones. What do you think is happening there on the drone question? No, you know, Joseph, that's exactly, like when we visited the 
Donna holding facility back, I believe it was in February. There was a, what we nicknamed the KGB handler. It was somebody that worked for Homeland that was working directly for the secretary. And they were, she was walking around with 10 members of Congress. She told us that we could take pictures. We couldn't have our phones in the facility. Of course, we all ignored her and took the phones in. And because I'm, my job is to inform 787,000 constituents in Northeast Texas about what's really going on, on all matters, the truth, to be transparent. And that's exactly the opposite of what the Biden administration wants to do. They want to say, no, no, look, look, look over here. They want to talk about COVID all the time because it's the only thing he's still polling well on. He's polling poorly. Uh, and he's underwater on everything else. So they don't want the truth to get out, because I'll tell you something. If the American people knew the truth at the border, they would be crying and screaming from the rooftops. They would be getting their pitchforks and torches out, demanding that we secure the border. So let's just examine this very quickly. The drug cartels are profiting wildly from mass unlawful migration. They make money in two ways. One, when 60% of our border and customs patrol are processing human beings in a humane manner, changing diapers, administering COVID tests, and feeding folks, then it's a lot easier for your drug dealer to smuggle your drugs into the United States. So fentanyl, cocaine, and methamphetamines is on the rise. So they make a lot more money that way. But also, folks are so poor in Central America, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and I would imagine Haiti as well, that they can't even afford the transit to get to the border. So the cartels say, don't worry, we'll get you up there. But you owe us once you get there. And this is a real big problem because the cartel has such a presence in Central America. They use the families of these migrants as collateral. And there's a indentured service in the United States today. Congressman Pat Fallon, we are out of time, unfortunately. There's so much more I wanted to get to with you, uh, including General Milley. But we're going to have to do that at another date. But thank you so much for taking your time to be with us today. Appreciate it. Joseph, I look forward to it. Thanks. Take care. And we will look forward to that conversation as well. But coming up, the Biden administration has suffered another legal defeat when it comes to the Texas heartbeat legislation. We'll talk about it when we come back right after the break. Stay with us. With text censorship on the rise, we've increasingly seen the cancellation of conservatives and Christians. At Family Research Council, we want to be proactive about making sure big tech doesn't completely silence us. We want to stay connected with you, and so we've created a text subscription platform. That way, if we are canceled, you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. You can get FRC's content straight to your phone by signing up for our text alerts. Just text STAND to 67742. Again, text STAND to 67742, and FRC will send you special alerts on the issues of the day. By subscribing, you'll also be one of the first to know about our upcoming events and programs. All of this info is yours with just a simple text. We want you to always have access to the content that will help you stand for what's right and keep you connected with like-minded community. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed person you know. Join us for FRC and FRC Action's inaugural Pray Vote Stand Summit. In light of the growing opposition our culture has expressed against biblical principles and the truth of God's Word, we've launched Pray Vote Stand Summit to equip and encourage Christians to respond to this opposition from a biblical worldview. We will address issues such as protecting the unborn, the importance of the nuclear family, domestic and international religious liberty, developments in our nation's education system, and more. We see the need for the restoration of a biblical foundation in our nation. 
and the necessity to equip Christians to effectively engage the culture and understand current events through a biblical lens. Join us at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia from October 6th through the 8th for the Pray Vote Stand Summit. Register online at prayvotestand.org slash summit or by calling 877-372-2808. More than ever before, Christians need to be grounded in the truth of God's Word and be prepared to articulate them in a winsome manner. That is why Family Research Council has launched the Center for Biblical Worldview. By applying the Bible and the historical teachings of the church to a wide range of relevant issues, including voting, religious liberty, abortion, marriage, and sexuality, the experts at the center have provided resources to help Christians live by a biblical worldview. To understand why scripture must be authoritative and to equip believers to advance and defend the faith in the workplace, in schools, in their communities, and in the public square. Access free resources like the Biblical Worldview series at frc.org worldview. To get highlights of the latest work of the Worldview Fellows, including their latest blogs, op-eds, interviews, and publications, sign up at frc.org subscriptions. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. After the U.S. Supreme Court decided to allow Texas's Heartbeat Act to go into effect this month, the U.S. Department of Justice made an emergency request to halt the law's enforcement. But yesterday, a federal judge rejected that request, delivering another blow to the Biden administration. Joining me now to talk about the latest legal victory for the Texas Heartbeat Act is John Sego, Legislative Director at Texas Right to Life. John, welcome to Washington Watch. Great. Thanks for having me. We're glad to have you. First, just tell us about the emergency motion filed by the Department of Justice. Yep. So after some unprecedented victory here in Texas with our Texas Heartbeat Act, we saw the Biden administration launch an attack last week on our pro-life bill. Uh, This bill is saving lives every day, and every day we have been praising this victory and thankful for the lives that it's being saved. But the Biden administration not just filed a lawsuit against us last week, but now uh, this kind of earlier this week asked for this emergency motion. We need to stop this bill immediately. And thankfully, the judge has decided, no, I'm not going to give you that. Uh, We will schedule hearing to debate those issues later. But for the time being, the bill is still being enforced here in Texas and saving lives. So what does that mean for the litigation that is currently underway? Well, there's two different federal cases right now. Uh, One of them is kind of on a slow track in the Fifth Circuit, and then this Department of Justice um, case that the United States has brought against Texas is the most imminent threat against the Texas Heartbeat Act. It is the vehicle that the pro-abortion side could use to stop this bill from saving lives uh, like it is right now. And so um, on October 1st, there's going to be a hearing to discuss that um, kind of request for an injunction. And it is a unprecedented request. Uh, We're seeing the kind of most aggressive pro-abortion administration attack a state for standing up and attempting to save lives. The pro-abortion side is no longer willing to just let the Supreme Court 
do the business of striking down pro-life laws. They are actually actively trying to get involved uh, to ask an activist ju uh, federal judge to stop this law. And so we'll see if they're successful in that on October 1st. The judge that ruled against the Department of Justice this week is an Obama appointee. I assume he's the one that will be overseeing the trial as well? Yeah, Judge Pittman is going to be containing this uh, case uh, over the next few steps of the development. And uh, he is dealing with the other federal case on it as well. And, you know, Texas Right to Life, we're just thankful that uh, he kind of took a step back, at, at least for this emergency motion, and said mm -hmm. that this is such an unprecedented request from the Biden administration that he needs to hear oral arguments. And that's what the state of Texas asked him to do. In the meantime, the law remains in effect. What kind of impact are we seeing on the ground in Texas? Uh, it is absolutely phenomenal what we're seeing here in Texas. The pro-life movement here in Texas is witnessing a taste of what a abortion-free state looks like. We're starting to see what it would be like if we were able to rid our society of the injustice of elective abortion. So we're seeing clinics close down because they can no longer do abortions after six weeks. We're seeing pregnancy centers um, having you know, three or four times the women coming through their front door because they're looking for alternatives and how they can be supported through their pregnancy. Uh, it is a very exciting time here in Texas. And our estimation is that we're seeing about 120 to 150 lives being saved every day here in Texas. Which is, of course, terrific news and the reason why people have been fighting ever since Roe was first put into law. Do you have the sense that the church is rising to the challenge and standing in the gap that the abortion clinics were once filling in Texas? One of the most encouraging things for us has been to see churches uh, help their local pregnancy centers. Some churches here in Texas have you know, started these pregnancy centers. Um, others have opened up adoption uh, ministries and other ways to support uh, women and families who are facing unexpected pregnancies and other difficult circumstances. And so that is really where we need the church right now. We are happy to hear churches preach about abortion. We're happy for the pastors that came to the Capitol to support the Texas Heartbeat Act. Uh, some very dear friends of ours who came and, and you know, asked their congregations to be active but now, once we're seeing kind of a taste of what an abortion-free state would look like, we need the church more than ever to not just say no to abortion, but to say yes to these women, to support these families and their uh, decision to, to choose this life-affirming option. Are you hearing from legislators, lawmakers in other states who see what's happening in Texas and, and maybe gaining inspiration from that? Yes, we are. It's, uh, you know, what we did here in Texas is a little bit unique legally, the way that we set up our law with the enforcement. Uh, there's a couple of reasons that we did that, but it is kind of providing for the movement an alternative to the typical route we go, where a state will be bold, stand up and pass a strong pro-life bill, and immediately it gets enjoined by an activist federal judge. We're kind of seeing an alternative route, and a lot of states are encouraged by that even states that have already passed a heartbeat bill uh, with the traditional enforcement mechanism. And so uh, I expect in the next few weeks, you'll see, you know, uh, five or six states introduce new heartbeat legislation.
organization with kind of a unique enforcement mechanism. There is a lot of criticism directed toward the Hartley Act uh, because it's a little different. It's awkward in some ways compared to other pieces of legislation. But the fact is that was done purposefully. And the fact that it was done that way is the reason it has not yet been thrown out by a judge. And so there's a long history and conversation behind that. But that's what the casual observer needs to understand. It is, in fact, the awkwardness of the law that allows it to survive. John, we got about 30 seconds. But what do we expect? What do we expect? What's the next step in this litigation against the Heartbeat Act? Yeah, we're going to have that October 1st hearing from the Department of Justice and see the full attack of the Biden administration. They're trying to enjoin every private party in Texas from enforcing this law. We're also going to see another federal case in the Fifth Circuit move forward. So a lot of legal fighting. But here at Texas Right to Life, and I know around the pro-life movement, we're celebrating more than 100 lives saved per day and working with other states that can emulate this success. And we celebrate with you, John Siego, Texas Right to Life. Appreciate your time. Yeah, appreciate it. Coming up next, we are going to talk vaccine mandates. 24 state attorneys generals have written a letter to the Biden administration saying, don't do that. We're going to talk to one of them when we come back. Do you want to be able to stay up to date on conservative news? Are you looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged? Then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent episodes of Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, tweets and other social media posts, and our latest blogs, updates, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Have you ever tried to read the Bible daily, but struggled to get in a groove? It can be hard, especially if you don't know where to start, or how to understand and apply what you've read. Or maybe it's just that doing it alone has made it too easy to give up. Well, let me encourage you. You don't have to do this daily discipline alone. You can join Family Research Council's Stand on the Word two-year Bible reading plan. God's Word is necessary in our lives, so much so that Christ said we are to live on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He calls it our daily bread because we need it daily to sustain us and nourish us spiritually, just like food does physically. That is why we want to read the Bible daily, and we'd love for you to join us so we can stay grounded in God's truth and grow closer to God together. Our hope is that this plan will help you be transformed by God's Word, by reading and hearing it daily. Sign up to get the daily passages and questions today by visiting frc.org Bible. That's frc.org Bible. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. Yesterday, 24 Republican state attorneys general sent a letter to President Biden in opposition of his attempt to his attempt to force millions of American citizens to get a COVID-19 shot. On five pages, the AGs outlined 
their outline called the president's plan disastrous and counterproductive. And they made it clear that they would seek every available legal option to hold the president accountable and uphold the rule of law if his administration does not alter course. With me now to talk about the inevitable legal showdown over the president's vaccine mandate is one of those attorneys general, Arkansas Attorney General Leslie Rutledge. Attorney General Rutledge, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you so much. Glad to be on with you all and happy Friday to everybody. Well, we are glad to have you. Happy Friday to you as well. Tell us, uh, why did you sign on to this letter? Well, I joined with uh, 23 of my colleagues to essentially send a message to President Joe Biden that his vaccine mandate uh, is essentially against the law and that these states and as the attorney general of Arkansas, I'm not going to sit silently by while Joe Biden tramples on our rights as Arkansans and as Americans. Well, and I want to point out there are 24 states that have signed this, and I won't take the time to read all of them. But in addition, the governors of three other states that did not sign, Idaho, Iowa, and Tennessee, have all expressed their concerns to the Biden administration as well. So you have a majority of states that have expressed their opposition to these mandates. Uh, Do you believe that President Biden's mandate will actually encourage people to be vaccinated? Well, it. You know, and it may encourage some to be vaccinated, but we want people to get vaccinated because that they have had a conversation with their doctor, with their pharmacist, and in consultation with a medical professional, not in consultation because they are being mandated to do so. I do not believe um, these mandates should exist, and we have concerns, and we stated these concerns that we're worried but this mandate could even further skepticism, you know, further increase the skepticism of the vaccines. Now, we're speaking with uh, Arkansas Attorney General Leslie Rutledge. And uh, General Rutledge, one part of the letter says the following. It says, Mr. President, your vaccination mandate represents not only a threat to individual liberty, but a public health disaster that will displace vulnerable workers and exasperate a nationwide hospital staffing crisis with severe consequences for all Americans. Do you believe that the Biden administration thought about the implications of this mandate or was it more a political effort? Oh, I I don't believe that the Biden administration thought through the impact or if they did, they don't realize how American businesses operate. Uh, This is not a one-size-fits-all. Just because a company has 100 employees, it doesn't mean that those 100 employees are working side-by-side one another. You know, so many businesses now have allowed employees to work remotely, or they may work outdoors. Uh, Unfortunately, the Biden administration did not take any of this into account uh, with regard to separated spaces or closed-off offices, Uh, It simply applied a one-size-fits-all strategy. We saw this when Joe Biden was the vice president to Barack Obama, and now we've got the same one-size-fits-all liberal radical ideas coming from the Biden administration. 
And it does feel like there has been a lack of foresight uh, in, in thinking about what this is going to actually do, uh, specifically the point you made in the letter about healthcare workers and the fact that there are significant numbers of workers in the healthcare industry who are not comfortable with it themselves. And the idea that the, we would just force companies to fire employees uh, at a time when we already have a shortage of healthcare providers doesn't seem like the wisest course of action, and it doesn't necessarily seem like the best way to accomplish the goal. You've also raised some constitutional challenges in your letter and the suggestion that when challenged, this is not going to survive. Tell us about why you think this may not be legal. Well, that we, um, you know, in that letter, one of the things that uh, we are researching is we contemplate taking legal action against the Biden administration is uh, a potential violation of our constitutional rights to say that a private sector employee uh, must get this shot or submit to testing or be fired. And, uh, you know, we lay out these legal concerns in our letter. You know, it's another example of an expansion of federal regulatory agency and public perception of the court's constitutionality. So we're, again, this was the, we're firing the shot across the bow to let President Biden and his administration know that they are on extremely shaky ground and that as the Attorney General of Arkansas, along with my colleagues in 23 other states, are not going to sit silently by while they trample on our rights and force companies to require a vaccine on those employees when the workplace doesn't uh, deem that necessary when health care providers are not deeming that necessary for that individual employee. And so it's an absolute overreach by President Joe Biden and his administration. Attorney General Leslie Rutledge from Arkansas, we really appreciate your time. We're going to continue to track this. We may need to have you come back because I know this is just the beginning of this saga. Really appreciate you joining us today, though. Thank you. Thank you. Have a blessed weekend. And we are going to continue to track this story a lot. I did not have the chance to get to her, uh, get to with her. Uh, I want to know what the timeline is on this. And we also have some interesting public polling on this issue that we're going to get to coming up after the break. But also right after the break in our worldview conversation, would Jesus submit to the vaccine mandate? That's what we're going to discuss with David Kloss. Stay with us. Are you a university student? Do you know a university student? Specifically, one who wants to grow as a Christian leader to influence public policy and culture? Look no further. Family Research Council has a life-changing 12 to 15 week internship program that prepares and equips students to take the next step in their professional journey. With a speaker series focusing on careers and callings, lectures from prominent conservative leaders, in weekly biblical worldview trainings, students will grow in personal and professional development. Interns will have the opportunity to work in policy, communications, event planning, and more. They will gain real-world experience working directly with our experts who will guide them in pursuing careers of influence so that they can make a difference wherever God calls them. This paid internship offers fully funded housing in the heart of downtown D.C., giving interns the chance to experience our nation's capital. Visit frc.org slash internships to apply. Is real biblical masculinity lost forever? In this culture of gender confusion, there are too few examples of godly manhood. So where can men, husbands, and fathers find a model of godly manhood 
leadership, and strength in this culture. Try our Stand Courageous Men's Ministry. We seek to help men develop a strong biblical character, cultivate positive habits, build and rebuild relationships, and make commitments that will move men closer to God's good purpose and design. Men who will stand courageous. We invite you to join us at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference to discuss critical aspects of masculinity. These conferences are led by men who struggle with the same issues you do and will invest in unpacking our role as a defender, provider, instructor, and battle buddy so that we can have a generational influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Learn more and find a Stand Courageous event near you at StandCourageous.com. With tech censorship on the rise, we've increasingly seen the cancellation of conservatives and Christians. At Family Research Council, we want to be proactive about making sure big tech doesn't completely silence us. We want to stay connected with you, and so we've created a tech subscription platform. That way, if we are canceled, you can still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. You can get FRC's content straight to your phone by signing up for our text alerts. Just text STAND to 67742. Again, text STAND to 67742. And FRC will send you special alerts on the issues of the day. By subscribing, you'll also be one of the first to know about our upcoming events and programs. All of this info is yours with just a simple text. We want you to always have access to the content that will help you stand for what's right and keep you connected with like-minded community. Just text STAND to 67742 and be the most informed person you know. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. In a speech yesterday, President Biden said that the data shows that overwhelming majority of Americans agree with my proposal. And there's no surprise, given that 76 percent of American adults have already gotten at least one shot. Is it true that an overwhelming number of Americans like his vaccine mandate? Well, the latest Axios Ipsos coronavirus polls said that showed that 60% of Americans support the federal government implementing these two rules. But a Trafalgar group poll found opposition amongst 60% of the public. The question was asked, do you believe President Biden has the constitutional authority to force private businesses to require vaccine mandates for employees? And it was just under 59% said no, Uh, just under 30% said yes. Do you believe President Biden's national vaccine mandate sets a precedent that could be abused by future presidents on other issues? 55% say yes. Again, just under 30% say no. Do you support efforts of state governors to oppose Biden's nationwide vaccine mandates on private businesses. 46% strongly support, another 10% generally support. So that's essentially 56% of the public that supports the governors who oppose the the mandate, while about 40% strongly or generally uh, oppose the efforts by governors to push back against the Biden administration. There's some polling data, of course, uh, shots in time uh, for what poll is polling data is worth, but it does not suggest, as President Biden has suggested, that an overwhelming majority of Americans are supportive of these vaccine mandates. 
But of course, as Christians, polling data is not the thing that primarily drives the way we think about issues. And for us, we have to think about whether or not this is biblical or not. Is the way we are thinking consistent with biblical truth? And helping me to unpack that question today is once again David Clausen, who's the director of the Center for Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council. David, welcome back. Hey, great to be back with you, Joseph. Well, we're glad to have you. This is a critical question. Um, first, there's, there's a lot of ways I want to go with this. But first, I just want to ask, does the Bible forbid people from getting vaccinated? It does not, Joseph. And I think that's a really important way to start the conversation because th there is no chapter in verse uh, that we can point to in the Old or New Testament, uh, I think, in good conscience uh, to say that the Bible would uh, prohibit uh, us from getting a vaccine. In fact, there's there's Christians who point to verses about caring for their neighbor that say that kind of that that's why they've gone in that direction. So I, I don't think there's anything that prohibits us uh, from getting a vaccine. So the, the, the conversation is not necessarily about vaccines. It's specifically about being forced to get a vaccine, about a vaccine mandate. Well, that's, that is certainly one of the questions here about mandates. And I, I want to I tease the point that you may raise there a little bit further. We are commanded to love our neighbor. Does that mean, as many have argued, that we should get vaccinated because that is a way we show love to our neighbors. And that's the uh, decision and the conclusion that a lot of uh, even my own Christian friends and neighbors have come to. Uh, that they think that uh, Scripture, and it is true, the spirit and the posture of the Bible is to love our neighbor. That's the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, however, Joseph, and so I think that that's the logic that some of our uh, fellow Christian brothers and sisters uh, have found convincing. However, there's other Christians who would uh, have maybe a different conclusion. They would say that actually getting a vaccine right now uh, might make me complicit uh, with abortion. Uh, therefore, uh, their, their conscience, uh, kind of th that, that center of moral right and wrong, is uh, telling them they probably shouldn't get a vaccine. And David, so I think I that's, that's a really significant part of the conversation, too. I want to jump in right there, and I want you to explain that argument a little bit, because for some people, it may not be obvious what the connection between a vaccine and abortion is. So why would somebody have a, an objection to the vaccine uh, on the basis of their objection to abortion? Yeah, no, it's an important question. So according to the Charlotte Lozier Institute, which is uh, one of the pro-life research groups here in Washington, D.C., uh, fetal cell lines, uh, these, these are older fetal cell lines that are used for research, uh, but fetal cell lines were used in the development and production of the Johnson & Johnson uh, COVID-19 vaccine. Now, when it comes to the Pfizer and the Moderna uh, COVID-19 vaccines, uh, fetal cell lines were used in the testing, uh, not necessarily in the development and production, but they were used in the testing, the lab testing of those vaccines. So uh, what, what a lot of Christians, uh, some are arguing, Joseph, is that even a remote complicity with abortion is something that they don't feel comfortable with. And, and that, I know, is an, an argument that's persuasive for a lot of people, the challenge for that. I mean, if you go back to things that are sinful, um, essentially all human knowledge can be connected to some kind of sin, right? And so I know that there are other people who say, yes, abortion is bad and we shouldn't have learned this that way. But the fact that we know it now uh, does not mean it's it's 
inappropriate to apply that knowledge in other ways. That's another argument, but that's deep in the weeds of science and frankly, one that I'm not qualified for. And I don't know that you are as well. And we'll have to bring somebody on at some point to tease out the ethics of that question. But I, I want to uh, also address uh, this this argument that I've heard a lot. And, and as I was trying to explore this, when I have deep theological questions, I did what I think everybody does. And they went to Facebook. <laughs> I went to Facebook, right? I go to Facebook and I ask my friends, what do you think? And kind of crowdsource this question. It, but this is a really an argument that I think I've heard a lot of places. Uh, and it essentially goes that Christians should obey the law unless the law is asking you to do something that is unbiblical. And when the law is asking you to do something unbiblical, you must not obey the law. But until that point, you must obey the law. Is that the right way to think about this? I think it's a great place to start, Joseph. Um, and so obviously as Christians, our highest authority is God. And so when you get to the book of Acts, you know, the, the governing authorities tell the apostles to quit preaching. And what is their response? We must obey God rather than man. And so ultimately our primary authority is God. Uh, but government is something that is good. Uh, Romans 13 says that the governing authorities are ordained by God. Uh, why? What are they ordained to do? Uh, they are ordained uh, to promote good and to restrain evil. So I think, Joseph, the, the, the posture that Christians should have generally is that when the government tells us to do something, uh, so long as it does not violate a clear biblical moral commandment, that we should go along with what the government says. I think that's the, the posture generally uh, that Christians should have when you look at a passage like Romans 13. And that is an argument that I have made myself. Now, I want to go one step further with you and test the limits of this, because whenever we establish principles, we want to find out where that will lead us. Right. And are there are there absurd conclusions? Is there a limiting principle that we that needs to be in, in effect? And when we say, when we propose the standard that we must obey the law unless it is asking us to do something that is unbiblical. Um, what if, I don't know if you know, uh, King, Mad King Ludwig in Germany is kind of the, the, the turn of the 20th century. He built a bunch of castles that were random in Germany, but he was mad because he actually did apparently have some mental issues. And he built a, a Luschwanstein Castle in southern Germany, which is really beautiful. And actually the Disneyland um, castle is based on Luschwanstein Castle, but it's put on this hill because it had no actually military purpose. It's just interesting to look at. But he was kind of insane. And what if... Mad King Ludwig came up with a law in his time, or other insane politicians, monarchs, right, who said, um, you must walk on your hands, or you must wear socks to bed at night. Neither of these orders would um, violate any biblical principle. Does that mean that Christians would be obligated to do something silly, like always wear socks to bed at night because their their monarch governmental authority had some mental issues and decided that that was something he wanted to order people to do. Yeah, it's an interesting thought experiment. And, you, you know, so again, we, we start with the principle that we're not allowed to do anything that disobeys God. Um, you know, the government does have its limits. Uh, Jesus was asked a question about taxes and what, what was his response? Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, the things that are God to God. And I think maybe a helpful way to kind of address the, the theoretical question you're getting at, Joseph, is what is the rightful role of government? 
And I think, you know, Abraham Kuyper, a Dutch theologian and politician, offers us some help here with his whole doctrine of sphere sovereignty. Uh, so what Kuyper argued is that kind of life is divided into these uh, autonomous, um, uh, distinct jurisdictions, such as the state, the family, the church. And he would say the state has a, a special responsibility. It's empowered with limited oversight responsibility uh, to to do what? Well, to do what Romans 13 says, uh, to promote good and to restrain evil. So something arbitrary like, you know, a mayor or a governor telling us all to wear pink hats on Friday, um, while it doesn't seem to serve any purpose, um, and it might not be unbiblical, is it really a, a furthering, you know, the primary purpose of government to restrain evil and promote good? And I, I would think something arbitrary like that probably... Uh, would not be, a, a, you know, furthering uh, the purpose of government. Now, that doesn't mean that I wouldn't go along with it, even, you know, but it, it doesn't seem to be why God ordained government. And then the question for us is, are we biblically, are we morally obligated to obey the authority with respect to uh, a particular law? Um, or whether once they have once they have exceeded their their God-ordained authority, once they are operating outside the sphere that God has entrusted right. to government, then they are operating uh, illegally in a sense. Now, I do think it's a different question in the United States, and I want to bring in a story we talked about a couple of weeks ago with John MacArthur and his church and the the legal action that he had against the state of California where he refused to close and not hold services when he was told to close and not hold services, there were a number of Christians who said that you should because the law said that. Well, once they sued, the courts actually vindicated the church and said it was the government, not the church, that was violating the law. So in a democratic republic like ours, we don't just listen to what the church, to what the government says and, and automatically obey, do we? No, and I think that's applicable, Joseph, to this whole conversation about COVID uh, mandates, uh, mandating uh, these vaccines. Uh, because you're right, when, when a government goes beyond its prescribed limits, it begins uh, acting unjustly. It begins acting illegitimacy, and so it, it therefore loses its uh, legitimacy. And so in this country, the, the, the law of the land is the Constitution. So if a mayor, a governor, or even a president uh, steps outside of the authority that's been uh, delegated to him by the Constitution, Christians are not required to obey him. The, the, the situation with John MacArthur and other pastors around this country, I think, is a, a very analogous to what happened in the book of Acts, when the apostles were told uh, not to preach about the gospel, not to preach about the resurrection of Jesus. And what they said, we have to obey God rather than man. And as Christians who are called, uh, called to gather and to called to worship, uh, no government can step in like many governors and mayors tried to do over the last year and a half and tell us that we cannot gather to worship. And you're right, pastors all over the country, including my own pastor, uh, Mark Dever at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, we were vindicated ultimately uh, when the, a, a court heard the case. Now, isn't there some concern that if we take this sphere sovereignty approach and say, well, when the government asks, acts outside of its, its duly delegated sphere, we are not obligated to obey. Isn't there some concern that we then become a law unto ourselves? 
and that we decide, oh, well, that's not their proper authority. Therefore, I can ignore that law. That's not their proper authority. Now I can ignore that law as well. Does that create a landscape where we're all inventing the laws and deciding what we want to obey or not ourselves? It, well, it certainly could, Joseph, and I think that's why it's so important for Christians to be having these conversations to seek the wisdom uh, of church leaders. You know, none of us should be kind of lone rangers uh, doing our own thing. I think that's why having the conversations that you and I are having right now is important because these are issues uh that scripture speaks to directly or there, there's principles that we can apply to it. And so I think ha having these conversations in community uh, is really important or else we do, you know, descend into anarchy, which is uh, not at all what we want to do or what I think uh, is the vision that scripture gives us when it talks about the size and scope of government. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. It's part of the reason why the local church is important. And we do have to approach the question in humility, not in a, I'm going to find a way to get what I want, but I want to make sure that I'm doing the right thing. Cause there really is a tension here because I think there's a really good, uh, sincere argument to be made that, Hey, that's what the law says. The Bible doesn't tell me not to. I need to submit to that in humility, but I also can make the argument. And I have made the argument that one way to love your neighbor is to make sure that your neighbor's grandkids don't get born into a, a, a tyrannical government and that we have to be stewards of the freedom that we have and make sure that we don't surrender it just because it's hard. Now, finally, we got about a minute left to tackle this question. Religious of exemptions right. talked about all the time. Is the fact that I don't like something grounds for me claiming a religious exemption? It's not, Joseph, and I think that's really important to, you know, a religious exemption has to be able to point to a serious tenet of your religious belief. However, uh, there are serious uh, objections that people have that I think can be considered conscience objections. Uh, a conscience objection is similar to religious exemption that it goes to the core of who you are. Uh, and if your conscience tells you that something is morally wrong, morally impermissible, I think you should be afforded a conscience objection because uh, I don't think anybody in this country should be forced to do something that they, at the core of who they are, believe it's inappropriate or immoral. I think if we go down that direction, uh, that's, uh, that's pretty troubling for, for all Americans. And that's the challenge we're all facing right now. And kind of this, is it a religious exemption? I just don't want to, but that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, God's going to be bothered and that I have a biblical grounds not to do it. And again, humility in all things. David Clawson, really appreciate your time and your wisdom once again. Thank you, Joseph. We will continue to talk about this and so much more. But until then, have a great weekend. God bless you. We'll see you next time here on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.